Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. In this episode, we'll be talking about how fasting can make room in your life for some spiritual growth, why Christians need to recover the understanding of ourselves as exiles, and If you're looking for some extra reading between now and Easter, we have a challenging suggestion to make, Dostoevsky. Let's get started. So Cameron, we talked in an earlier episode about the Christian year, the church calendar, and the season that we're in right now is the season of Lent. Now, you shared with us then that you grew up in the Lutheran Church, where I assume Lent was recognized, but did you grow up having to think of things to give up during Lent? It's a good question. I I remember thinking about it because my mom brought it up, My especially my mom would bring it up and, and ask us maybe to consider giving something up as kids, but I, I don't think I ever did when I think back. I know that she did my parents both did but it was more of a suggestion it wasn't something that we had to do right i i grew up in southwest louisiana where i always joke everybody there is roman catholic including the atheists you know it's very cultural catholicism kind of the way that we have a lot of cultural lutheranism in our area and so lent was of course a big deal i mainly knew about it from mardi gras the big Fat Tuesday celebration, because if you're going to have to give stuff up, you definitely need to overindulge in those things right before you give them up. That was the logic anyway. And so as a Baptist kid in a predominantly Roman Catholic context where everybody was doing this, we knew about Lent, but we definitely didn't give anything up for Lent. We were probably, in hindsight, embarrassingly condescending towards our friends who were actually giving things up for Lent. But I think the thing that often gets lost when we talk about what are you giving up for Lent or whatever is the kind of spiritual activity that is, which is fasting. And fasting is definitely biblical. I mean, it's definitely something Jesus did and that we are encouraged to do in Scripture, right? Yeah, I was thinking earlier about the passage in the gospel where Jesus, he's talking about fasting and he says, when you fast, you know, don't do this, do this, do this. So the assumption, at least for his context, is that the people around him, which, you know, this Jewish audience were fasting. Jesus isn't unique. The fact that he fasted and associated fasting and prayer together. But I think in let's say modern Christianity, it's probably a practice more honored in the breach. So that having a time of year when you're called upon specifically to think about fasting is a good discipline because we're just not usually thinking in those terms anymore. I understand the idea of a season of fasting. And yet I was was thinking how all of Christianity is meant to be a kind of self-denial at the same time. So 
what is the relationship between this period of fasting over Lent, which is a kind of self-denial, and the general self-denial which Jesus calls all of his followers to, to take up their cross, to deny themselves, and to follow him? A good way of thinking about it might be, should we worship the Lord on the Lord's day, or should we worship him every day? And the answer is both, right? That we, of course, should treat all of life as worship, and wherever we find ourselves, we can worship God. But we have also been called to gather, in particular, on the Lord's Day, collectively as a church, and worship him there. It's not an either-or. And I think fasting during this 40-day period leading up to Easter has a similar kind of quality to it. So prayer and fasting should be part of the Christian life. It should be just part of the spiritual discipline that we practice. But this is a time of particular focus on those things. And, and the reason is because we are approaching resurrection. You know, we are approaching Resurrection Sunday. And the purpose for this vigil is to allow ourselves to focus on Christ's preparation for the cross and to use the discipline of fasting to make room during this season for a more intense focus on Christ and on his crucifixion and his resurrection. So I think it's it doesn't have to be an either or. Does that make sense? So with that in mind, what are you giving up for Lent? Have you given that some thought? Yes. Yeah, I have. So we're about a week in now. Not quite. And so I decided to give up social media, my own personal use of social media. I, I do have to use it for work on a work account, but I'm giving up my own personal social media and then alcohol as well. and. You know, it feels funny to admit, not admit, it feels funny to say I'm giving up something like alcohol for Lent because the typical assumption seems to be that you're giving up something that you're maybe struggling with or you're giving up something that is sinful. You mentioned this on your Ash Wednesday sermon, actually. We typically think we have, oh, this is a time where we we give up a, a sin. You know, I know that I'm doing this thing. I probably shouldn't be doing it. So I'll give it up for Lent. But you said that's actually not quite the right way to think about it. It's actually that we're giving up something that's good in itself, a gift from God, but that we're going to take this season of Lent to go without it, to fast and to focus on rather this physical feasting to focus on spiritual feasting. So that's what I had in mind. I think a good scotch is great every now and then, but giving it up is great too, to focus on the Lord. And I think with fasting in particular, the idea of giving up something good in order to gain a different kind of good is really part of it. Because obviously, as you say, it would be ridiculous to say the important thing to do right now is for a short period of time, abstain from your sins. There's no gospel in, in that. You know, you should always abstain from your sins, not just during the season of Lent. But this kind of a fast can help you focus. And I guess the, the point 
I was trying to make on Ash Wednesday was just that we fast in order to feast spiritually. We fast physically so that we can feast spiritually. And so the things you give up also create a space for new things to have, new spiritual things, a, a deeper appreciation. My encouragement is almost a, a kind of balance, not only to think of what I want to give up, but also what I want to put in its place that ordinarily I wouldn't have room for. It's easy for me to to find that balance when it comes to social media. At least the answer is more obvious to me because social media is about attention largely. So I'm taking my attention off of this thing and filling all that other space with either prayer or reading scripture, just even being with my wife. With alcohol, I'm not quite sure, you know, what is, what is the balance? So you give up something, you give up a good, a good gift like that. I'm not sure what the spiritual counterpart is. It doesn't have to be a one-to-one. I'm not saying that if you stop drinking single malt scotch, the time you save, you can read the Bible through an additional three times during Lent. Your consumption of single malt is not probably at, at that level, at least not that I'm aware of. It, it's more of a, a an idea of sacrifice that is a kind of deprivation, like it, it, it disrupts the habits and allows different habits to flourish in its place. So I'll give you an example. I mean, my thoughts are similar to yours in terms of what to give up. What I'm trying to give up, and I haven't been entirely successful so far, but I'm trying to give up the news. A little while back, I got a copy of this book called Stop Reading the News. And it's by Rolf Dabelli. He's the author of The Art of Thinking Clearly. And the subtitle of the book makes a promise. This is a manifesto for a happier, calmer, and wiser life. It is based on a talk that the author gave to a bunch of reporters from The Guardian. And I love the fact that when he was asked to speak to them, he spoke to them about the value of not reading the news. Of course, as journalists, they were suitably appalled. But in the book, he makes a great case for how so much of the news is kind of pointless information. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no reason why you need to stay on top of it. And it has a distorting effect on reality, which I've witnessed in my own lifetime. I'm old enough to remember when CNN first started broadcasting 24-7 and knew people who were completely normal and well-adjusted until they started consuming this 24-7 news coverage and it changed them and made them angry and and um, changed their personalities. And so I've been conscious of the way that constant consumption of air quotes here, journalism, can alter a person's perspective and not for the better and also not in a more truthful way because it is often the case that people who are up on the news are less informed not more about what's really happening and so what he recommends is kind of a a soft approach where instead of hot takes you're more focused on long form 
journalism and getting something more like historical perspective, not outrage of the day. I've sympathized with the argument. And so it, it occurred to me that it would be positive to curtail my news consumption. And, and in the spirit of this fasting feasting dynamic, the question was what to put in its place. And so what to put in its place is I've discovered online, someone very helpfully went through and created 40 days worth of readings from the early church. So beginning with the Didache and then working all the way through to, I want to say Gregory the Great, there are these daily readings and I've been keeping up with those. I'm, I'm working on the epistles of Ignatius right now, little excerpts from those. It is replacing the meaningless news cycle with something very meaningful. And, and that kind of captures that sense of getting rid of one thing in order to focus more on something else. And as you say, it's early days. We'll see how, how we both persist. Maybe we'll check in later and see how much, uh, how much discipline we've managed. I said earlier how Jesus calls everyone to a life of self-denial. And it's something about Lent that I just find particularly interesting is just an opportunity. We talked last time about the church calendar. We've talked in a recent episode about the church calendar, how the calendar kind of helps us along throughout the year to orient our lives to God. I think this is one area where we have an opportunity to just practice some some self-denial, where in so much of my life, I don't have to, if that makes sense, or we, we just almost... Maybe it's my life, <laughs> but I feel like I'm living in lots of feasting. Life is easy most of the time, and you don't have to practice any severe form of, of self-denial. So I'm thankful for a period in the church calendar where it enables us to become the sorts of people that can do that by God's grace, with the emphasis still being on spiritual feasting, and yet knowing that that's kind of contrasted against this physical self-denial. I just think it's healthy. I think you're right. We live lives of extraordinary excess compared to probably any other human beings in the history of the world. And so even our idea of hardship is adjusted for the fact that we have so much. Uh, you know, kings of the past didn't enjoy the kind of luxuries that that people in North America take for granted now, we outraged. Right. If giving up Twitter, oh my goodness. Right, right. Yeah. And and so I think in that sense, we are a generation of believers who benefits disproportionately from this kind of an emphasis where like I, I always find it liberating and, and joyful and wonderful to contemplate the call to feast. And certainly in our celebration of the Lord's Supper, I love the fact that it is a joyful feast, not a sort of funereal observation of morbid introspection, that sort of thing, as it sometimes is. So feasting is great, but I, I do understand that as people, we're a lot more accustomed to feasting than in the past would have been the case. And, and so it's, it's the fasting maybe that, that we in particular need to be called to.
So as I've been reading my Lenten devotion from the early church fathers, very early on I came across the epistle of Methodus to Diognetus, and this is a document that contains a really famous description of the early Christians. It's striking. I won't read the entire thing, but there's a certain point in this description about how the Christians live that I think bears particularly on the significance of Lent. So in describing how Christians operate, he writes these words, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. And I think in that beautiful expression, he captures something about the, the Christian calling to exile that connects beautifully with what it is that we are observing during Lent, because of course there are 40 days of Lent and they hearken back to two events in scripture where that number 40 is, is huge. The first, of course, is the 40 years of wilderness wandering that Israel endured before entering into the promised land. And the second is the 40 days of temptation, which Jesus endured when he went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. And so we as believers look back to those 40 years and those 40 days and embrace during this time a similar fasting spirit, conscious of ourselves as exiles in this world. I think there's something helpful about thinking of yourself as an exile in your native land, don't you? Yeah, surprisingly, it's a weird thought. I think it's helpful to recognize that before Jesus returns, all of our life as Christians is kind of unsettled. This, it's a kind of exile. I guess that's what Lent is trying to remind us of. It's helpful to, to practice that by giving something up in this 40-day period. But I do think it's also a reminder, like that quote, that Christianity in general is like this, that Christians are always homeless and always home. Right, right. I think the author of Hebrews talks about, you know, they, they looked for another country. They looked for the city that is to come. And there's something about the life of faith that is, although grounded in the here and now, always yearning for the land that is to come. So that Peter can talk about believers, the church, as God's elect exiles. And election speaks to this special love that God has for his people, but exile speaks to what you might think of as the opposite of that, like almost abandonment, that an exile is one who's not at home, a person who is not comfortable in his native skin, so to speak, and is oriented towards some other identity or, or, or world to come. And that's the quality of the Christian life that this season reminds us of. It reminds me of something else we've been talking about at church, which is the Israelites coming back from exile, this supposedly triumphant event to rebuild the temple. And there's that scene 
where they're celebrating the second temple, this rebuilding. And yet some of them, some of the older Israelites in particular, are crying. They're sad. They're mourning because it's, it's not quite what they thought. And sometimes I think about exile in that way, too. It's like they've returned home. They're back where they're meant to be. Jerusalem, the temple, everything should be good, right? But it's not quite. They know that something is still a little bit off. And I think that's by God's design, right? Like he hasn't completed his work of salvation yet. And so, too, in our lives, even when we experience the goodness of God, when his presence is is working in us, it's still not quite fulfilled. We're still not quite home all the way, just like Hebrews is saying. We're still looking for that city to come. Yeah, I think like an area where it's really helpful to think about yourself as an exile would be when it comes to expectations versus reality. I'm always surprised how many people who profess faith in Christ, when they suffer, when they face adversity, respond in surprise or sometimes even outrage. That sort of classic cliche of bad things happen in my life and I shook my fist at God. And I was like, why? Why me? And, and you think to yourself, but you follow a suffering savior. How could it have come as a surprise to you that, that you too would suffer? But it does because I think we forget that this is not our native country, that things will not always work out to our advantage that there will be misunderstanding and persecution and that we ought to expect it, not be surprised by it, and respond to it in love so that we live by the ethic of of the country that is to come, even though we find ourselves as exiles, sometimes subject to the thing that that exiles and foreigners are, are always subject to in another country. The problems that that modern Christianity, American Christianity needs to contend with, having lost the sense of ourselves as exiles is one of those things. We are so quick to identify as native citizens of this land and to tenaciously cling to the idea of Christian America that we have lost sight of the fact that we are God's chosen exiles. Yeah, I think thinking of ourselves as exiles would really inform our politics. There's so much there um, that you're home, but you're not home. That that just like God called the Israelites while they were in exile to seek the good of the city, so too were to do that. But yet you're not mixing with the Babylonians kind of a thing. If you remember that, then you can apply that history of exile in scripture to your own life. As you're saying, you can remember the exiles in Babylon worked for the well-being of Babylon. They wanted Babylon to thrive. They didn't undermine it. They didn't sabotage it. And yet, they were distinct as a people. They didn't worship the gods of Babylon. They were set apart, even though they were serving and building that land where they had been brought into exile. And if you remember that, then you know instinctively how to navigate so many of the challenges that we face right now. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that one of the reasons why this fasting thing is so hard and this Lent wilderness thing is so hard 
is that it is precisely a reminder of our need to be exiles, to live as exiles, when so many of us want to live as native inhabitants of this land and not the land that is to come. So shifting gears a little bit, Cameron, you work in marketing now, which is why you have to do some paid social media work and can't give it all up for Lent. But you also have a background in teaching. You taught theology for a while. And so you and I have had some great conversations about, let's say, the the pleasures and also the anxieties of teaching. If you had to sum up with the experience of teaching, uh, not in a single sentence, but just kind of an idea, like your takeaway, like, like did you love teaching? Was it tough? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I did enjoy it. I, I enjoyed the act of teaching and did find it difficult. I found the, the preparation to be really gratifying on my part. So just preparing lessons getting really excited to come before this class and present or to get them to engage. I think what was the most challenging part was when it seemed like they weren't engaging or like, you know, things were firing in my brain that just were not firing in their brain. So that disconnect between me and them and what's going on up here and what's, you know, what <laughs> they're falling asleep down there. Right. I remember this has been a while now, but uh, talking with you and your wife, Jenny, and one of the things she said to me, and I'm, I'm not even sure if you were there now that I think about it, but, but she said to me, Cameron is a really great teacher. And I remember sort of filing that away as you do as a pastor, you know, you're always looking for, for uh, people to uh, exploit or whose gifts, you know, can be used. And so I filed that away, but I didn't have an opportunity to really test it until later. And in particular, we were in a, a book group together earlier in the pandemic, and I was kind of leading the discussion. And, and, and I will say for my part, I'm not a great teacher. I, I'm a great talker. You know, I, if all you have to do is, is talk, okay. But when you've got to get people to sort of follow along and interact and and talk back and that sort of thing. I start breaking out in a cold sweat and I, I, I can do it, but it's definitely a nail biter. And so Cameron stepped in for me in that process and led one of those discussions and it went so well. And afterwards I, I went to Lori, my wife, and I said, Cameron is so much better at this than I am. I need to learn how to take his approach to doing this. And so I teach occasionally. And right now, if you, if you take uh, grace out of the equation, right, not, not preaching and teaching at church, but just in the uh, outside world, mainly what I do is, you know, with Worldview Academy, I've taught there over the summers for a number of years. And at Worldview at the Abbey, which is their one year, program between high school and college, kind of a gap year, bridge year program. And so I go there and I teach for a week in the fall and a week in the spring, and I get to choose 
my material. And so in the fall, I always teach Flannery O'Connor. I, I teach her short story, Parker's Back. And then in the spring, I teach Dostoevsky, the Grand Inquisitor chapter from his book, The Brothers Karamazov. I've got that on my mind because it's something I do during Lent. And this year, because of the pandemic, I don't get to do that. And so I have Dostoevsky on the brain. I know you've read The Brothers Karamazov. It's probably expecting too much to think that everyone listening has also read. But the Grand Inquisitor chapter is just one chapter in the book. It's kind of famous. It's easy to find copies of this printed separately because it's often used in philosophy classes, occasionally, I guess, literature classes to to expose students to the ideas in the chapter. Did you ever have to read that? Yeah, I think we read it two or three different times at seminary. I found it fascinating in different classes, different professors. Yeah, but this this seemed to be a really important chapter that they wanted us to read. Yeah, I remember reading it in I want to say it was my it was a philosophy class. It was on existentialism. And so this is one of the assignments that we had to read. And uh, it made an impression on me, but I don't know that I understood what it was all about. And, and, and really, it wasn't until I was teaching it that, that I understood. So we talked about reading for Lent earlier. And so I just want to encourage people to consider, if you're looking for things to read during Lent, that this chapter about the Grand Inquisitor would be a good one. The reason is it actually centers around Christ's wilderness temptation. The three temptations that Satan uh, tempts Jesus with factor into this chapter. So for those who haven't read it, I'll give you a quick setup. So the idea is that in the novel, there's one of the brothers, Karamazov, Ivan, is an atheist. And he has written this sort of prose poem And the Grand Inquisitor chapter is him describing the poem to his brother, Alyosha, who is a believer. And so he's telling him the story of the poem. And the poem is kind of weird. The idea is that during the Spanish Inquisition, the Grand Inquisitor is, you know, executing heretics and that sort of thing. And one day Jesus comes to town. He doesn't say anything. He's immediately arrested and interrogated by the Grand Inquisitor. And so the chapter is a monologue of the Grand Inquisitor basically railing against Jesus and telling Jesus that when Satan tempted you, you made exactly the wrong choices. You had three chances. You got each one wrong. And if you had chosen the other way, you would have achieved the happiness of humanity. And so, ironically, it's this strange, Jesus got it wrong kind of narrative. So you've read it, Cameron, and I'm not going to ask, do you think the Grand Inquisitor is right about Jesus and did he get it wrong? But but uh, do you remember what impression having to do these, these multiple readings gave you about the, the wilderness temptation and the significance of those temptations? I remember being really confused the first time. So to any listener who's going after this, don't, it's okay. You might have to read it a couple of times. I'm still wrapping my mind around this, but it was really strange to think that Jesus got something wrong or Jesus missed his opportunity in this kind of trial with Satan. 
because we typically think about that experience as Jesus overcoming Satan or, you know, overcoming the temptations. So what do you think Dostoevsky is trying to do? He's obviously way in the background trying to communicate something. What do you think he's trying to do with this scenario? So I think like the, the overall idea is what, what he's sketching, the Grand Inquisitor is for him a stand-in for the Roman Catholic Church, which he's critical of. He's Eastern Orthodox, and so he sees things very differently. But also a, a kind of demonic embodiment of modernism, where we see a kind of cynical view of human beings that's being manifested here. Because that's basically the Grand Inquisitor is arguing to Jesus, you just don't understand human beings. And if you just understood human beings better, you would have navigated these temptations differently. So uh, just to refresh your memory, the three temptations in the wilderness, uh, Satan encourages Jesus to uh, turn stones into bread so that he can eat to throw himself off the top of the temple so that angels can, can rescue him. And then he offers Jesus dominion over the earth, that he will make him a great ruler. And in each of those three cases, Jesus rebukes him and rebukes him by quoting scripture that repudiates what he's saying. So the three temptations, I, I call them the bread temptation, the trust fall, and the dominion temptation. And in each case, the Grand Inquisitor says you should have chosen differently. You should have fed the people because if you had fed people, they would follow you because people need to be fed. If you meet those needs, then they will listen. They will follow you. You should have thrown yourself off and let the angels catch you because that would have been an astonishing miracle. And when people saw that, there would have been no question that you were who you claimed to be and people would have followed you. And, and not had doubts. You should have made it clearer through this miracle who you were. And of course, you should have taken the crown. You should have taken dominion because people need to be ruled and they need to be ruled with unity. They need some power above them to basically tell them what to think and that sort of thing. And so the reason that Jesus chooses the way he does, according to the Grand Inquisitor. And I think Dostoevsky might have seen some merit to this, is that Jesus wanted people to have freedom, that he couldn't do these things because he, this is quoting here, he wanted to give them the gift of freedom without which they could not love him. So if he wanted to be loved, he could only be loved freely. And so he had to give them freedom. And if he were to you know, turn stones into bread and feed them, that would violate their freedom. They, they wouldn't be choosing to love him. And if he threw himself off the temple and was miraculously saved once again, they wouldn't really be choosing to love him freely. They would be compelled by the miracle. And the same thing with dominion. If he, he ruled over them, then they would, they'd be following him because of power, not because of love. And so Jesus gives the gift of freedom, which is his mistake, according to the Grand Inquisitor, because human beings can't use the gift of freedom. They're too weak. And so they need to be fed. They need to be overawed. And they need to be ruled because of their weakness. And this is what the Grand Inquisitor's church gives them. Basically, goes back to Satan and agrees will take what Jesus said no to. And throughout 
throughout the chapter, the Grand Inquisitor has a, a kind of contempt toward the doctrine of election. Right? He's constantly saying, you know, Jesus chose the salvation of a few, and what we've done creates happiness for everyone. And so part of this is because Dostoevsky's idea of election is also tied to uh, what we might call like a works righteousness. So the elect are the saints and the saints in his view, he's thinking, you know, ascetic saintly monks like father Zosima and the brothers Karamazov, the, the idea that when a holy man dies, his body doesn't even stink because he's so holy. He doesn't decompose. And that's quite a scandal when father Zosima actually smells after, after his death. And so the idea of what makes a saint is a life of holiness and perfection. And essentially the argument is, you know, election is, is like the survival of the fittest. Only the saints are chosen and everybody else is condemned. And so given that kind of understanding, you, you get a feel for the dynamic. So I think there's a, uh, on the one hand, an argument against what you might think of as like the, the tyrannical church that, that rules the consciences of people and has departed from the gospel. Now, on the other hand, you have a sense of, of a sort of romanticized freedom that is very comfortable with the thought that, that only the saints are really saved and you should emulate the saints and, and, and revere the saints. And, and I always find myself wanting to challenge it all. You know, and it's the reason why I, I teach this chapter, because I don't think you can obviously trust the Grand Inquisitor. I don't think you can entirely trust Dostoevsky to the extent that you understand, you know, what's him and what's not. Um, you really have to navigate your own course. And, and the way you do that is by thinking through all of it from a scriptural standpoint. So obviously we're not going to try to do that here, but but the the key is asking yourself if the Grand Inquisitor's version of why Jesus says no to temptation is the same explanation as Jesus's explanation. If you look at, at the actual accounts of the wilderness, you find that Jesus doesn't give any of these man-centered reasons for not giving in to temptation. Right? He doesn't say, look, I'd love to do this, but I can't violate freedom. Instead, he gives very uh, theocentric responses, right? Completely oriented around God's word, God's glory, uh, don't tempt God. All of, all of those considerations have to do with putting God at the center. Our tendency always as human beings is to put ourselves at the center. And in Christianity, we see this temptation constantly where we approach the question of salvation and we want to make it anthropocentric, all about us, all about our salvation, our freedom, our choices. Scripture makes it Christocentric, makes it theocentric, putting God and God's work at the center of salvation. As we contemplate things to fast from, I would suggest that man-centeredness, that, that need to put ourselves at the center of our spiritual understanding is something to step back from. 
so that we can place the proper emphasis, the Christ-like emphasis on God at the center of all things. And that's why I think reading this chapter, as cryptic as it can be, might be a helpful thing to do between now and Easter. One thing that's always struck me about Jesus' temptations is is their relationship to the Lord's Prayer later on. So maybe the Lord's Prayer is a way for us to do that, to to center ourselves around God, not not so focused on our freedom, our freedom to choose God or to build a holy life, but to trust in God. You even have a reference to bread, of course, in the Lord's Prayers. Give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus is saying just that. He's tempted to make bread out of the rocks. He says, no, I'll, I'll, I'll trust in the Lord. Man does not live by bread alone. And I think even the other ones too, there's this temptation to throw yourself off and to have this grand display of God's power come and save you. And Jesus teaches his disciples to, to pray, deliver us from evil, lead us not into temptation. It's almost as if Jesus is reflecting on his own experience. I've wondered this. If he was reflecting on his own experience in the wilderness and then teaching his disciples based off of that. The last temptation relates to the last point in the the Lord's Prayer too. Thine is the kingdom. I'm not going to grasp all the kingdoms of the earth or to grasp power because God's kingdom is, is coming. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you to everyone who's listening to us. That's all the time we have this week for the commentary. Hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, you can find out more about Grace Presbyterian Church by visiting us online at graceforsufalls.org.